Well, good morning and welcome to the Mount. Like they said, my name is Adam and I'm the lead pastor here. I wanna say good morning to all of you here in Stafford, to those joining at our Fredericksburg campus and those on our online campus as well. We're excited to be with you on this sort of week before Thanksgiving as we get ready to celebrate the holidays. If you are joining us for the first time today, maybe you're a guest with us, I wanna just extend a special welcome and say we're so glad you're here. We are in a series called There's More to the Story. And over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at some of the teachings in the New Testament Testament, specifically in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels that record the teachings, the life, and the ministry of Jesus. And we're looking at when he taught, the way Jesus taught, how he taught with stories or parables. And for those of us that have been here and tracking maybe online or at our other campuses, we realize that a parable is really just a story that is told in sort of an an earthly context, but also has a, a heavenly or eternal meaning applied to it. In essence, when Jesus would teach these stories, he would talk about things that the first century people of Israel experienced on a daily basis, but he would kind of teach it as, oh, there's more to the story. And this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. You can also go to the Mount app and you can find it there as well with all of the sermon references and different things you might need. But while you are turning there, uh, the story that we're going to pick up this morning is a story that we're all familiar with. And I say that with confidence because even if we are not familiar with the Christian faith, maybe even if we're not familiar with church, we've heard of this story. We have hospitals named after this story. We have charities named after this story. We have nonprofit organizations serving the needs of people in all of our communities that are named after this story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Right, we, we know this story. We're, we're familiar with the fact that, maybe we might not know the details, but we're familiar with the fact that there was a guy who helped someone. We have laws made up in our communities about these to protect people who go out of their way to help other people. It's a familiar story. And it begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, if you turn there with me. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So an expert in the law, depending on the the translation of scripture you're looking at, if you're looking at the NIV, it says expert in the law. If you're looking at the ESV, it says a lawyer. And this isn't like a lawyer like we think of. This is someone who is very, very familiar with the religious law and the cultural law for a Jewish person. You you might substitute, instead of expert in the law, you could say a sage, a wise religious leader, a, a theologian. These experts in the law in the first century Jewish culture were people who, and they knew the law, the details of it so well, so down into the the minutia of it, that when there was matters that needed to be discussed or, or verdicts that needed to be handled with the law, they would call them in as experts. And they would say, this is a, this is a tricky situation. We don't know how to interpret this. We don't know what to do here. Can you give us guidance? Can you give us wisdom? And so the fact that this expert in the law is asking Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He already knows the answer. He's not asking out of pure kind of um, just, just wonder. He, he, he knows the answer. He's, a, he's an expert in the law. He has studied the law. He, he has it most likely memorized every book of the Old Testament. He knows the law. And so he's asking. And it's funny that scripture says to test him. Now, a lot of times when we hear this story, uh, I was talking to my kids the other day about it, and I was like, tell me the story of the Good Samaritan. And they're like, Dad, there was this religious guy, and he tried to trap Jesus. No, 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 it never says he tried to trap him. It says he tried to test him. 
Now, now that could be a negative trap. It could be, I know all the law, and what I want to do is I want to get Jesus to say something wrong. I want to trap him. But the fact that it's interesting in the scripture, it says that when he went to test him, he stood up and called him rabbi. He's giving him a sign of respect. In essence, in the first century Jewish culture, what you would do is there was someone, a a great teacher whom you you greatly respected and you wanted to know if they really knew what they were talking about, you would stand up and you would address them as rabbi. What he's trying to figure out is does Jesus really know what everyone else says he knows? I'm really interested in essence. He wants to know. He's not trying to trap him. He really is testing him. And it says this, Jesus answers. He says, what is it written or what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus doesn't answer the question. Or the guy says, hey, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you're the expert. What, how, do you, how do you read scripture? And, and, in, and in first century Jewish culture, this, this was kind of a, a, a norm in the culture. What you would see is you would see these, these religious leaders, these, these theologians, these experts in the law, and they would gather together around dinners and around meals and in the synagogues and different places, and they would just kind of ask questions back and forth to each other, very, very philosophical, without ever answering the question. The question would always be answered by another question. And so what we see is Jesus engaging in the normal practice of debate in this time period. He says, hey, how do you interpret scripture? How do you read it? In verse 27, the the leader says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in essence, this religious expert, he he takes the, the Ten Commandments and he summarizes them in two sentences. Rather, the first, the first four Ten Commandments are all about how we relate to God, the, the vertical relationship. And he says, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And then he says, the, the second commandment, which summarizes the next six, the, the vertical relationship to people, he says, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, verse 28, it says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, There's not very many places in scripture where Jesus says, you got it right, now go. Now, if you were this dude, and you've heard all these rumors about Jesus and how he likes to kind of, you know, tell stories that kind of are with a twist and there's more to it and the hero's never who you think it is, this is the moment where you just stop talking. This is the moment where you say, awesome, thank you, Jesus, and you walk away and you go about your day because Jesus just gave you a free pass. He just said, if you just do what you just said, you will live and life will be great. Go and do that. But he doesn't, for those of us familiar with the story. Verse 29, look at this. It says, but he, the the religious leader, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It says he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked, who is my neighbor? And several things are happening here. First, he wants to justify himself. You you get the sense that he wants to know, like, okay, there are people in my life that I haven't been loving, and I want to make sure that the reasons I haven't been loving them are okay. I want to justify my actions. I want to make sure that I don't have this, this guilty conscience that says, I know I should be loving all of these people, but I'm only loving some of them. So instead, what I want to do is I want to justify. I want to make sure that, that you understand Jesus and the people listening understand that the reason I'm not loving these people is because there's no expectation that I love those people. I want to justify my actions. I want to ease my conscience. I want to get rid of this guilt that I might feel. I want to make myself look good. 
And so how does he do this? He asks a question. He says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And remember, Jesus has just said that the key to eternal life is to love God and love your neighbor. And so this guy basically says, who exactly is? If you're saying I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? This is a key question. If the guy is trying to figure out what it means to live eternal life, he has to know the answer to this question. And Jesus sort of gives us a glimpse into the cultural background a couple chapters earlier about what it would look like and why he might be asking this question. And look at Matthew verse 543. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Now, for a first century Jew, Living in Palestine at this time, the idea of knowing and defining who was an enemy and who was a neighbor mattered significantly, right? Because they are told, you can love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. Now, nowhere in scripture does it say that they are dead. They're not reading this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't come out where God says, hey, I want you to to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, because there was this, this cultural undercurrent in first century Palestine. If you were a Jew living in Jerusalem or any of the surrounding areas, this cultural kind of undercurrent was that there was this thing called a rule of community. And it defined what is community and what is not. And the, most, the, the greatest examples we have of this definition come from us from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran. And, and they clearly outline the idea of these are the people that are in the community and these are the people that are out of the community. These are the people who are your neighbors and these are the people who are your enemies. Because for a Jewish person, they had to create these boundaries. They had to know who's my neighbor and who's my enemy. Who do I love And who am I allowed to hate? Who do I get a pass on loving? And so they created sort of these these boundaries in their lives. They made these, these circles, these lines that they knew. Anyone on the inside of these lines, anyone on the inside of these boundaries is safe. And they are someone that I am commanded to love in Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. We are told that these are my my family my friends, my people I interact with on a daily basis, and even as far as stretching anyone who is a Jewish person, those people are inside the lines. But everyone else, they're outside. They're an enemy. To a first century Jewish person, everyone who was not like them was on the outside. Everyone who didn't believe what they believed was on the outside. Everyone who didn't live like their culture was on the outside. Everyone who was on the outside was an enemy. I will love who's inside, but I'm allowed to hate those on the outside. And this is the context where the guy asks, who is my neighbor? He's asking Jesus, how do you define the boundaries of my love? What's, in other words, what's the limit to my love? Or in other words, let's take this a little deeper, right? Who do I not have to love? How how little do I have to love and still be okay according to the letter of the law? Who, who, Who can I hate? Who can I avoid? Who can I despise? Who can I say I want nothing to do with and still be okay in the eyes of God? How tightly must my boundary be? Where's the line? In other words, the guy's asking, how much is enough? Right? How much is enough? When it comes to my love, how much is enough? And here's what's interesting. I think you and I, all of us, do this each and every day. 
We, 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 we see in scripture, right? Those of us that, that profess to follow Jesus, we see in scripture where it says, hey, you are to practice spiritual disciplines. You are to engage in meditating on scripture. You are to be a people of prayer. And we say, I get that, God, but how much is enough? Like, where's, where's the line? How, how much scripture do I need to engage with and still be good? How much prayer do I need to engage with and still be good? Like, where's the line? How, how little can I really do? In the area of sexual purity, where we see in scripture where it says we are to flee from sexual purity, and we're like, I get that, I'm supposed to flee from it, but God, how much really? Where's the line? Where do I, where do I get a pass? Where's the, where's the boundary? Where's the, the spot that I can say I can, do, I can do this, but I don't have to do that, I can stop right here? We see in scripture it says to honor your mother and your father, and we say, but how much, to what extent? What if my parents do this, or this, or this? When do I get to cut them off? We see in scripture where it says, guess what? Husbands, you are to lay down your lives for your wife. And we say, right, I get that, but how much? Like when can I stop and think about myself? When can I be selfish a little? Wives, you are to be submissive to your husband. I get that. But where does it stop? Where, where's enough? I just wonder this morning, where's an area of your life where you're creating these boundary lines, these guardrails, and you're saying when it comes to following Jesus, in essence, how little do I really have to do and still be okay? That's what he's asking. Who is my neighbor? How little do I really have to love and still be good with God? And I feel like that's our heart sometimes in all different areas of our spiritual life. What about you? The parable continues in verse 30. And so in reply to this question, he asks, like, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't just tell him. It would be much easier for Jesus to say your neighbor is X, Y, and Z. Jesus, like he always does, tells a story, right? It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. These robbers stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. So Jesus tells this story that many of us are familiar with. It's about a guy who's walking down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road, immediately when he tells this story in the first century context, everyone would have been like, oh, bingo, we know exactly what road you are talking about. This road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho was one of the most dangerous roads in the Middle East at the time. In fact, uh, most scholars had the nickname for this road, the Path of Blood or the, the Way of Blood because it was so dangerous. This path went through these, these kind of uninhabitable kind of, you know, desolate, deserted kind of wasteland of places. As Jerusalem said, about 2,500 feet above sea level, but Jericho was about 800 or 700 feet below sea level. So in a matter of 15 miles, you're descending almost 4,000 feet down as you walk through this uninhabitable space. 
And what would happen is robbers would just wait on this road because they knew this road that many, many people traveled this road. It was the major hub from Jerusalem to Jericho. In fact, most scholars would say that the majority of the priests in Israel lived in Jericho and they had these kind of like rotations where they would have to go to Jerusalem to serve for a week at a time and on their way home, they would be taking money back to the local synagogue in Jericho. So the robbers would wait there to rob the priests and different people as they passed through. It was dangerous. It was just desolate. And, and the story is that this man is walking down this road. We don't know which direction he's going. We think it's Jerusalem to Jericho by the way we look at it most times. As he's walking this road, he, some robbers you know, ambush him. They, they come up on him and they, they, they beat him up. They, they strip all of his clothes. They rob him and they leave him half dead. Not, not quite dead, but you know, if you saw him, you, you don't really want to, you're like, maybe he's dead, maybe he's not. I don't really know. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of bruises. I'm going to continue walking. Verse 31, that's exactly what happened. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, if you're the half-dead man dude, and you see the priest, maybe he can see it. I mean, he's not fully dead, so maybe his eyes are working. If you see the priest walking, your kind of heart starts to beat faster because you're thinking, finally, the, the, the people who are supposed to love people the people who are supposed to care about people, the people who are God's servants in the temple and the synagogues, the people who are the priest, one of them's finally walking by, surely this person will stop and help me. It's his job. It's what he does. It's who he is. This is the guy that walks around three or four times a day reciting how great the Lord is and how we love him and how we love our neighbors. But the story in Jesus says he just passes him by. He just keeps on going. Verse 32, and so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so you have, a, you have this guy, and he, we don't know, we assume he's a Jewish person, he's beaten up, he's left on the side of the road, and a priest walks by, and next comes a Levite. And if you're not familiar with what a Levite was, a Levite was basically an Old Testament kind of worship leader. They were like the Lou and Becca of the church at that time, right? Like they, they show up, and it's like, okay, like the priest walked by, come on, these people at least still, they sing great songs, they, they lead worship services, they're good, they're going to help me, right? Surely these people are going to help me, because these people also serve the Lord, they follow God. But no. Just like the priest, the Levite just passes right by. And it's interesting that you can still walk this path today. If you were to to visit Israel and kind of walk this way to Jericho, the path still exists. There's also a road, but the path still exists. And you can kind of travel it to see what it was like. And the path was so narrow at points that most scholars and most people who have walked it would acknowledge that to see this dead man lying, or half-dead man lying on the side of the road, in order the priest or the Levite to pass him, they would have actually had to almost step over him. It's not just crossing to the side of a six-lane road. They're, they're stepping over this guy to get past him. Why? Like, I read this story and I say, why? Why didn't they stop? I mean, these are the, these are the religious leaders of Israel, the people who, who work at the temple, the people who lead songs, the people who are faithfully serving God day in and day out. Why wouldn't they stop? Well, maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe they have a schedule to keep. Maybe they have plans. Maybe they have to get to their next shift at the temple and they don't want to be late because they have to be there ready to serve all the people who come and to worship and lead and all of those things. Maybe they have a spiritual obligation for where they have to be and they have something to do. Maybe they're afraid. 
Maybe they come up because you hear stories all the time. They come up on this man who's, who's not dead but half dead, and they look at him, and they say, okay, like, I, I want to help him. I need to help him. But if I stop and bend down to help him, what if it's a trap? What if, what if I bend down, and while I'm doing that, some robbers come up behind me or from the side, and what if they jump me as well? I don't want to fall into the trap. Maybe I'm afraid of what will happen if I help him. And so they keep walking. Maybe... It's just maybe they're, they're worried about their, their, their ritual purity and cleanliness, right? As a priest and a Levite, their, their livelihood, their income, everything they did was about serving in the temple and making sure they were there, ready to be a part. But the scripture tells us that if they were to get near or touch a dead person, a dead body, a half-dead body, then they would have to go through a period of kind of just being quarantined and getting recleaned over again so they might miss their shift. They might miss their opportunities to serve the Lord. And so in an essence, to be able to do what God is asking them to do, they're willing to ignore the person who needs help. Maybe they're just mad people. Maybe they're just people who don't really care. They're hypocrites. We don't don't know. All we know is that these two people see this half-dead man on the side of the road, and they didn't stop. They kept going. They come face-to-face with a need and thought, hmm, someone else will take care of that. Someone else will help. And the truth is, if we're being honest, don't you and I come face to face with needs almost every single day? And how many times do we say, someone else will take care of that. Someone else will help. Someone else will volunteer. Someone else will step in. Our excuses are very much like theirs. Yeah, but I, I, someone else, I just, I, I'm just really, really busy. I have to get from here to there. I'm just really, really busy. I have to go do this. I would, I would, I really, really would, but I, I just am so worried. I'm afraid of what would happen if I do. I, I would, I really, I really do. But you know what? I feel like God is really calling me to do this right now for this season of my life. And so I need to be obedient to what God is saying, even though the need in front of me seems to be there. We hear about a need in our community. We hear about a need in our world and maybe, maybe it's just me, but there's so many times in my life, even my wife, she'll look at me and she'll say, Adam, I think we should get involved in this. I think we should help in this. And I'll say, yeah, I think somebody else probably could. Somebody else probably should. Like, let's, let's, let's tighten the circle a little bit, right? We, we walk in on a Sunday morning, and some of our immediate reactions can be, man, this This place, this local church, regardless of our campus, it seems to be running well. It seems to be going great. Things must be good. They've got everything they need. And then we, you know, walk into the children's area and we're we're struggling to have a class open and we're told, man, this class is going to be closed because of lack of volunteers. And we walk by and we say, you know what, man, somebody else will take care of that. Somebody else can serve those kids. Somebody else can be in the parking lot. Somebody else can do that. I, I just got a lot going on. I, I need to get in and out. I've got lunch. I've got, the, I just, I've got all these excuses. I don't feel like it's not the season that God is calling me to right now. Someone else will take care of that. Someone else will help. Someone else will volunteer. And I can't help but wonder, think about the ripple effect it would have if everyone before us through all of history would have said somebody else will help. Somebody else will take care of it. These guys, their excuses were invalid. There was a need in front of them, and they just kept on going. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, when Jesus introduces this character, this narrative, like, 
This would have been shocking in many ways, right? Like the theologian listening to the story, most likely he's familiar with Jesus at this point because remember, he comes to him, he stands in respect, and he asks him a question to test him. He wants to know if the rumors are all true. And so most likely he has heard that Jesus teaches a certain way. And Jesus normally had a pattern when he teached. He would talk about the religious elite and then kind of the common person, right? And he would compare and contrast these two people. He would say, the religious elite, they're hypocrites, they do this, but the common person does this, the person who is lower than, less than. And so maybe the theologian at this point is tracking. He's like, yeah, a Levite and a priest, the religious elite, they came by and they did nothing. I bet he's gonna say, here comes a common Jewish man, somebody we least expect, maybe a tax collector, right? Maybe someone who is, you know, half blind, half unable to walk, and they're, they're going to come by the lame, the crippled. Oh, Jesus loved these kind of stories. But Jesus doesn't come in and introduce a hero in this moment. No, no, Jesus says, listen, there were the two good guys that walked by, and here comes the enemy. And to a first century Jewish person hearing this, I, I can't explain it well enough because we have 2,000 years of history of naming our hospitals, you know, Samaritan's Hospital, Samaritan's Purse, Samaritan's Charity, because we have the good Samaritan. But to a first century Jewish person, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. Samaritans are never good. Samaritans are bad. They are evil. They are disgusting. They are the enemy. They were outsiders, but they were much worse than outsiders, you see, centuries before the story happened, the Samaritans were Jewish people who basically said, we are going to violate the laws of God. We are going to move worship to a new place. We are going to intermarry with other religions, other nations. We are going to break most of the vows of scripture that we see in order to survive as a people. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the historical books. They only focused on the first five because they thought the rest was garbage and they didn't care about it. They thought that they were doing the right thing. Now, not only did the Jews despise them because of their idolatrous living, but the Samaritans despised the Jews because of the way they were treated. In fact, this, this relationship was so bad that historians would say in 9 AD, you know, about 25 years before Jesus is teaching this, there's this kind of in a moment of a fraternity prank in essence, a group of Samaritans break into the temple in Jerusalem and scatter all over the floor bones of pigs all over it to desecrate the temple on the week of Passover. And you can imagine the Jewish people, they're furious, they're in anger, they can't use their temple on the most holy week there is. And so there's just this, this anger that begins to build and build and build. Some of the earliest Jewish writing, I want you to understand how much they hated each other. Listen to this. This is some writing where they're, they're talking about the Samaritans. It says, there are two nations that my soul detest, but a third nation that's not even a people. Those who live in Seir and the Philistines and those who live in Shechem. In other words, there are two nations I despise, and one I won't even call people. They're subhuman, they're less than, they're half-breeds. Another example, it says, he who eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the flesh of a pig. If a Jewish person killed a Samaritan man, normally murder meant death penalty, but if you kill a Samaritan, you got off because you helped out the Jewish nation. This blood was deep. In fact, in the Gospels, we see Jesus in Luke chapter 9, this funny story where he's on his way to Jerusalem and he has to go through Samaria and he stops by a village and he, he asks for lodging. He wants a place to stay and the Samaritan people look at him and his disciples and they say, you can't stay here. We know you're on your way to Jerusalem. We know you're Jewish. You cannot stay here. We don't like you. And one of the apostles uh, looks at Jesus in this funny moment and says, should we call down fire and brimstone to burn everyone in this village alive? 
Like they, they were so despised that even the disciples were ready to kill out an entire village through prayer. It's also quite possible that the Samaritan, when he, if this would have been a true story, when he's walking by and sees a Jewish man on the ground, he would have began to laugh and said, finally, a Jew gets what he deserves. These people hated each other. They were enemies. So verse 33 continues, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Some of the translations of the Bible, the New Living Translation says he felt compassion. I love that. The idea here is that he saw him and there was a crucial shift in his heart. While the priest and the Levite walked by, they saw him and stepped over him. The Samaritan saw him and he felt compassion. He felt something. And what we see in this story is we see that Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to loving your neighbors, it's not about defining who is the neighbor necessarily. And we're going to talk about that. It's about feeling others' pain. It's about seeing the situation, the plight, the circumstance that others are in and feeling it in your heart. Because when you feel it in your heart, it leads to action. It leads to compassion. And look what he did. He says he... Verse 34 and 35, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured oil on and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he, he took out two denarii or two days wages and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He, he went the extra mile, right? He, he could have helped. He could have, he could have done something and just said, man, I'm so sorry for you. Let me bandage you and help you get up. No, no. He inconvenienced himself to help this man. He got off of his donkey and put the man on his donkey, which meant for the next 15 miles down a hill of 4,000 feet, he had to walk leading a donkey with a man who's half dead on it. He gets to the inn and he says, listen, here is some money. Take care of this guy and let him stay as long as he needs. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care the expense. When I come back, I'll pay the bill in full. He inconvenienced himself to to help this man. He was willing to go out of his way to do what was necessary to make this man safe. And can I just tell you, isn't that one of the hardest things about following Jesus is the number of times he tells us to inconvenience ourselves? The number of times he tells us to get out of our comfort zone just this past week, uh, I guess a week or two ago, my family and I, we, we visited New York City for the first time. And we were, we were over in Brooklyn across the bridge walking around as a family on our way to, to take some pictures at this bridge that everyone wants to take pictures at and then go eat lunch. And as we were walking, there was this older man, maybe 60, 70, maybe even older than that. And he was on the side of the road changing his tire. And I saw him, my kids saw him, my wife saw him. And as we're walking, my wife, in the loving way that she normally does, she said, Adam, I, I think you should stop and help this guy. And I should have. You know what I said, though? I said, ah, yeah, he, he seems like he's doing okay, and I don't really want to get my shirt dirty knowing that we're going to take pictures and eat lunch. I don't want to inconvenience myself. I, I, I can't be the only one in the room, right? I, I want to help people. I want to love people. I just don't want to leave my comfort zone. I just don't want it to affect me. Because I, I've got excuses just like the Levite and the priest. I, I've got a schedule to keep. I've got things to do. God's calling me to other things. And I don't, I don't want to do this and this and this and this. But this guy looks at him and feels compassion and then inconveniences himself to the point where it cost him his time and his money and he had to walk. Remember, 
we love to create these artificial boundaries, these, these lines in areas of our life with Jesus. Why? Because as long as we're in the lines, in the boundaries, we can stay comfortable. You see, that's, that's what's crazy about this parable. Is yes, the parable is about loving people, it's about defining who your neighbor is, but more than that, it's about the definition of what it means of who is an enemy and who is a friend. And for a first century Jew, that would have been, who am I comfortable with and what is an inconvenience? What Jesus is saying is he's saying, listen, when it comes to following me, when it comes to walking with me, you need to be willing to not build these fake boundary lines, these artificial things that hold your comfort in. You need to be willing to erase them and move them because I am calling you to a life of inconvenience. I am calling you to a life that is not comfortable. I am calling you to step out. The lawyer says this. He wants to know his obligation to love. He wants to create these boundaries, and Jesus obliterates these ideas. We see this when Peter wants to know, how how much do I need to forgive, and then I can stop forgiving? And Jesus says, no, you need to forgive forever and ever and ever, in essence, right? Because Jesus doesn't want us making these boundaries in our lives. He wants our obedience to him to be an inconvenience, to be uncomfortable, to step out even when we don't want to. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, this would be the time for a lot of us, you know, years ago when I would preach this story, and I would say, now, who, who in this story are you? And I, you'd be like, okay, like, maybe I'm the Levite or the priest. Maybe I'm the person who, when I see someone who needs help, I just walk right over them because I've got my excuses, and yeah, you could say that, but I think when we do that, when we, when we say I'm the Levite or the priest, what do we, all it does is make us feel guilty, all we do is feel bad, and we just say, man, I'm a horrible Levite. I'm a horrible priest. I don't know what to do. Maybe I need to be like the good Samaritan. And so what we do is we look at the Samaritan who, who tried to love someone, and we say, okay, I don't want to be guilty. I don't want to feel guilt. I don't want to feel shame. I, I don't want to be like the Levite or the priest. Therefore, I'm going to act like the good Samaritan. I'm going to start doing what he did. And for the next day or two, every time I see a homeless person or a person on the side of the street, I'm going to give them a dollar. I'm going to buy them some coffee. I'm going to help everyone I can. I'm going to support a child in another country. I'm going to be this loving, kind person and we try and we try and we try and we all know what happens after we do it for a couple weeks or a couple months, we stop doing it. Why? Because trying to be like a character in scripture is incredibly, incredibly hard. And I don't think Jesus told this story so that you and I could, one, feel incredibly guilty about our lives and then begin to try harder. The gospel actually wants us to try less and to believe more, right? And so here, here's what I wonder as I read this story and I think about this story, I don't, I don't necessarily identify myself anymore as the Levite or the priest, but I also don't want to be the Good Samaritan. Because when I read this story, what I recognize over and over again as I mature in my faith is that I'm the man on the side of the road. There, has anyone else in the room ever had a moment where you feel like you're just done? And you're just on the side of the road and no one seems to care. And it seems like everything you do is a failure and you are an enemy to God. Anyone else ever spend years of your life being alone? Thinking you, you, you were taken care of but you weren't and you were just left there. Anyone else ever been on a road they knew wasn't a good road and you probably shouldn't have been on. But you didn't think anything would happen to you. You would be okay. You didn't think you'd mess up. You didn't think the plans would fall through. 
Anybody else ever had a season where they felt dumb, they felt exposed, they felt shameful, they felt naked, they felt helpless by everyone who was walking by whose lives seemed to be so much better than theirs? Anyone else ever been hanging by a thread every day just to feel like no one even sees you in your mistakes? Anyone remember the first time Jesus looked at you and saw you on that road? Anyone else remember the moment where you were helpless Naked, and Jesus bent down and picked you up. Anyone else remember the moment that Jesus inconvenienced himself and said, let me help you. Let me take you to a place of warmth, of shelter, and of comfort. Anyone else remember that moment where Jesus looked at your father and said, he's mine. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care how much I have to pay. He or she is mine. You and I, we're the man on the side of the road. And Jesus is the one that comes when everyone else walked past us, when everyone else cared, and he picks us up and he takes us to the Father and says, you are loved and you are cared for. And listen, it's only when we see ourselves as the man on the side of the road that we begin to realize that when we see others on the side of the road, that our scars are the same as their wounds. And we need to go and we need to say, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. Let me pick you up because there was one who was greater that picked me up one day in my life. And I will pick you up and I will take you to him and I will say he is mine. Watch over him, whatever he needs. Listen, why? How do we define our neighbor? We remember who we were. And in our heart, the only excuse is to love others the same way because of who we were. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you give us stories in scripture um, that not only speak to how we live and how we act in our process of discipleship, but they show us who we were without you. God, this morning we confess that we are thankful that you rescued us on the side of the road when we were broken, when we were naked, when we were ashamed, when we were helpless. God, you picked us up. Your son inconvenienced himself so that we can live. God, we pray that we are the type of people who don't build boundaries, that don't try to stay in our comfort zone, but instead we look at people around us and our spiritual life as a change of heart, and we run to you in full devotion and full obedience. Jesus, we are thankful for you and your life and your sacrifice. Amen.